you were here last week on Easter, you know that we talked about the power of a changed life. And we talked about the fact that the greatest evidence of God's power is possible. It's not seen in creation or even the universe. The greatest evidence of God's power at work is when a life is changed. That's what Paul was talking about, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. The word power there is dynamite, dunamis. It is the power of God that brings about salvation, the opportunity for everyone's life to be changed. And if you were here, we saw a couple of great stories of lives that had been changed. We saw it in the life of Sam. We saw it in the life of Gary, which brings up a great question. How does God actually change a life? How does he take us through that transformation process where we become the person that he created us to be? And I've often wondered, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Why couldn't he just add one chapter that tells us what this process is like? What are the stages that we go through? But since he didn't, since he dropped the ball, I've decided to address it in this new series that we're calling On the Road. By the way, part of the idea for this series came from a survey that we participated in a few years ago. It was called the Reveal Survey. And this is a survey 525 churches across America participated in. And what the survey revealed is that everybody who's attending church on the weekend, everybody who's showing up falls into one of four groups, one of four categories. Let me show you the four groups and you can determine which one of those groups you're in. The first group would be those of you who are exploring God. You're not a Christian yet. You'd be the first one to admit that you're not a Christian. You haven't made that decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But you show up on the weekends. You're checking things out. You're kicking the tires. By the way, we're so glad you're here. But you would fall into the exploring God category. The next category is made possible, and we put the cross here because that means you finally come to terms with the cross in your life. You finally came to terms with the fact, wow, I need a Savior. And maybe it was last weekend. Maybe you realize that God wanted to be in a relationship with us, so he sent his son to this earth to be our savior. And Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven. And then three days later, he came back to life to verify and validate that he was truly the one who had the power to forgive us of our sins and to restore us back into a relationship with God. So now you are beginning your relationship with God. You're just getting your feet wet. You're starting to experience what does it mean to be a Christian. The next phrase would be those of you who are growing with God. Maybe you've been a Christian for a year. Maybe it's been 10 years, but maybe you're in a small group. You're starting to understand prayer, uh, studying God's word, the importance of applying his principles, his truths, his precepts to your life. Maybe you've even started to give a little money, but you would say, yeah, my trust in God is growing, so my relationship is growing with God. And then the final circle is where God wants to take all of us. It's a God-centered life. And at this point, this is where we would say we're all in. This is the life that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where we've crawled up on the altar and we've made our lives a living sacrifice to God. We've given him every aspect of our lives. But you know, if you think about these four circles from a relationship standpoint, you would say that in this area, if you're exploring God, God is a stranger, okay? You've heard about him, you know he's out there somewhere, but he's not even an acquaintance because you've never met him, so God is a stranger. When you get to beginning with God, God is a friend. I mean, you trust them a little bit, but you don't trust them a whole lot because the reality is, just like with an earthly relationship, until you really get to know someone, you're not going to have much trust in that individual. So you're here, God's a friend. When you get to growing with God, you would say that God is a good friend. You want to talk to him about everything. 
You, you want to bounce decisions that you're getting ready to make off of him. So he's a good friend. When you get to God-centered, you would say that God is a best friend. In other words, you would trust him with your life. You're all in in this relationship with God. And I think there's an overriding principle or word that we could put across all four of these circles, and the word would be trust. And the reason I say that is just like in our human relationships. Uh, when we get into a relationship, as our trust in that individual grows, what happens? Our relationship grows. Our relationship deepens. What we're going to see in the series is the very same thing. As our trust in God grows, our relationship with God grows. As our trust in God deepens, our relationship with God is going to deepen. By the way, just so you know, that really is the story of the Bible. In fact, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find that the Bible is simply an epic love story where God, the creator, is the main character. And he created mankind, as we're going to see, Adam and Eve, to be in a relationship with him. But they broke the trust. They destroyed the intimacy. And the rest of the Bible is all about God working really, really, really hard to put it all back together again. That is the epic story of the Bible. It is a story of redemption. It's about God doing everything in his power to restore a relationship with the people he created to have a relationship with. Now, why is this so important? It's because you've got to understand deep in the heart of God, he doesn't just want rule keepers. Deep in the heart of God, he doesn't just want church people or religious people. Deep in the heart of God, he wants a relationship where there is full disclosure, where there is full acceptance. That's the context in which he created mankind. That's the context in which he created Adam and Eve. And God has never, ever changed his agenda. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If not, we'll put the verses up on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible this weekend. Notice what it says. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And understand, in this environment, when it all began, there was this incredible relationship of intimacy and trust between God and between mankind. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, something goes horribly wrong. Let's pick it up, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. By the way, do you know what the lie was that destroyed intimacy between God and man? The lie was this. God has a secret. God has an agenda. The lie was there's some really cool stuff out there that God doesn't want you to experience. And if you stick with God, if you stick with the God plan, you're going to miss out. And you're going to look back on your life and you're going to have some regrets. Understand that was the lie that broke intimacy and trust with God. And understand it's because intimacy and trust go hand in hand. For example, if I can't trust Laura, it's going to affect every area of our relationship. If Laura can't trust me, it's going to affect and impact every area of our relationship. We're not going to be completely open. We're not going to be completely honest. We're not going to be completely transparent. We're going to keep secrets from each other. And there goes our intimacy 
Because you have to understand, trust and intimacy go hand in hand. When we pick it up in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized. That word means they learned something. They gained insight. They were like, aha, there are some things we didn't know about. There are some things we've never felt before. There were some things out here that we've never experienced. God was holding out on us. And so it says in the next verse, verse 8, they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And it's not where are you, Adam. It is why are you where you are? You've never done this before. You've never hidden from me before, Adam. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. There's something new. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So the reality is there is some tr truth to what Satan said. When Adam and Eve broke intimacy with God, they discovered that there were all kinds of things that God had been keeping from them. Things like fear, things like shame, things like guilt. But what they didn't understand was that it was because he loved them and he wanted to protect them. In other words, he was holding out on them because he so desired to be in an intimate relationship with them. And if you know the story, they go through the whole blame thing. Adam said, it's the woman that you gave me. Eve says, no, it's not my fault. It's the serpent. He's the, he's the one that made me do this. But what I want you to notice is God's response in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And understand at this point in the story, God introduces something brand new to mankind. God introduces this concept of grace. He is going to give Adam and Eve something they do not deserve and right here in the Bible verse 21 God begins the pursuit to recapture the intimacy to recapture the trust with mankind that has been lost by the way it's interesting you can see this pursuit all throughout the Old Testament for example by the time you get to the end of Genesis God has created a nation it's the nation of Israel to show the rest of the world what it was like to have a relationship with God by the time you get to the book of Exodus you learn that this nation of Israel had grown up in Egypt and it had become so mighty, so, so many people that Pharaoh was afraid and so he made them slaves. They've been slaves for 430 years. It's now grown into a nation of two and a half million people. And God raised up Moses and Moses delivered them from slavery into freedom. But what's interesting is this. When God brought the Hebrew people into freedom, the first thing he did was he didn't give them the Ten Commandments. He didn't say, now here are the rules I want you to follow. These are the hoops that I want you to jump through. He didn't do that. The first thing God did was to part the Red Sea so that they could escape. It was as if God was saying to them, I want you to know you can trust me. I want you to learn to trust me. And after they had been delivered from Egypt, after they had crossed the Red Sea, do you know what the Hebrew people were thinking? They were thinking, wow, what a great God. Wow, we can trust him. And understand it was once that trust was established, God said, now I want to tell you how to live your life. 
Not so that we can have a relationship, but because we already have a relationship. And it was then that God began to give them the Ten Commandments. But understand, the commandments didn't precede the relationship. The relationship, the trust, was established first. So when we get all the way over to the New Testament, we shouldn't be surprised to find that the message of Jesus wasn't, hey, here are ten more things that you need to do, right? Here are some more rules that you need to follow. The driving message of the New Testament is God saying, I want you to put your trust in me because I am trying to reestablish a relationship. You see, if you were here last weekend for Easter, that's why we talked about the importance of putting your faith, putting your trust in Jesus as your Savior, And it's because your relationship with God is initiated, it's begun through an act of trust. And as that trust grows, what happens is you begin to move through these four groups. You begin to move through these four stages. By the way, our mission statement at Hope is this. Love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. But understand, the thing that's actually growing in your relationship, as you're growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ, the thing that is growing is your trust. And the greater your trust becomes, the more intimate your relationship with God is going to become. For example, if you're here this weekend and you put yourself in the exploring God category, my guess is that your big issue isn't obedience. Your issue is this, do I really believe this stuff? Your issue is, can I really turn my whole life over to God, and can, I, and can I trust him with my life? And the tension you're having is this. You know, I really, really would like to make this decision, Mike. I would like to cross the line, but I'm just not there yet. And if I asked you what's not there, you'd say it's a trust issue. You're just not sure you have enough confidence in God. And so God, he wants to build your trust in him because it is the essence. Understand, it is the essence of an intimate relationship. He wants you to get to the point where you can say, I don't always understand you, but I trust you. You don't always answer my prayers the way I want them answered, but I trust you. Life doesn't always go the way I want it to go, God, but I trust you. That's where God wants to take all of us. And as our trust grows, our relationship with God grows. I want you to turn from Genesis to Matthew chapter 8. It's a great story that illustrates what I'm talking about. By the way, this is the only time in the Bible where Jesus is amazed by what somebody else does. And that's pretty cool. I mean, how would you like to be the only person in the recorded history that did something that made Jesus go, wow, that's crazy. Did you see that? It happens right here in this story. Only time it happens. But what's interesting in this story is that it's not somebody doing some extraordinary obedience thing. It's not like, wow, did you see her not murder her husband? See, It's not, wow, did you see him not steal? Did you see him not commit adultery? It's not an obedience thing. Let me show you what made Jesus go, wow. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Well, a centurion, just so you know, was a Roman soldier who was in a position of authority over a hundred soldiers. And again, let me remind you that the Romans, they were the bad guys in first century Judea. They were the invaders. They were the occupiers, right? These are the ones who are forcing all the taxes on the Jewish people. These are the ones who would force you to do things naturally you wouldn't do. 
And that's why Jesus came and identified himself as the Messiah and that he was the king of the Jews. That's why the people were so disappointed because they thought Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom and he was going to overthrow Rome and he was going to establish a Jewish nation because they absolutely hated the Romans. So in this story, we have this, this Roman, pagan, law-breaking, heathen centurion and he has the audacity to approach Jesus and ask for a favor. Verse 6, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now, you got to remember, the Jews absolutely hate the Romans. So when, when the disciples, when they hear that this guy's servant is paralyzed, they're probably thinking this, good, and we hope he dies. And we hope whatever he's got is contagious, and you get it, and you die. And we hope all 100 of your men get it and they die. And we hope all their families get it and they die. In fact, we hope this spreads throughout Rome and you all die, 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 die. But notice verse 7. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And I am confident that at this moment the disciples were thinking, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? What have we signed up for? Go and heal him. How about we go down there and we put him out of his misery, right? But notice the centurion's reply in verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, yeah, you got that right. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. So evidently, this centurion, he's been watching Jesus from afar. And maybe he's watched as Jesus has performed some of his miracles. And so he says this, listen, Jesus, I don't need you to come to the house. I think you have the power to heal my servant from right here. And he gives him the reason he feels that way, verse 9. For I myself am a man under authority. In other words, Jesus, I've had my eye on you. I've been watching you and I've noticed that you and I, we have something in common. You see, Jesus, I, I command a hundred guys and they obey me. These hundred guys, they do whatever I say, but let's be real. The only reason these guys do whatever I tell them to do is because I represent Rome. It's not me. It's not me. I represent Rome, and Rome's a lot bigger than me. That's where my authority comes from. And in the same way, Jesus, I've noticed that you command illness, and illness seems to obey you. And your authority has to come from somewhere. And I don't know whose authority you're under, but whosoever it is, it's probably a lot bigger than you too. So you don't need to come to my house to heal my servant. Whoever you represent, I am confident that they could heal my servant with you right here. You're thinking, Mike, that's, that's what the Roman centurion was thinking. That is exactly what he was thinking. That was his observation. Verse 9, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers unto me. I, I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now notice this. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. As I said earlier, this is the only time this word is ever associated with Jesus. And it's not associated with an act of obedience. It's associated with someone's incredible faith and trust. And I'm sure that Jesus is thinking at this point, <laughs> wow. I wish all of the Jews were like these guys, like this guy. And maybe he turned to the disciples and thought, I wish you guys were more like this guy. 
So it tells us that Jesus was amazed. He was astounded by this guy's confidence and by this guy's trust in him. Because this Roman centurion realized, you're Jesus. But there's a somebody a lot bigger than you. And whoever you represent is working through you. And so I can put my confidence in you because of who you represent. You don't need to come to my house. You can just say the word from right here and my servant will be healed. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Look at that statement. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us that what really blows Jesus' mind is big faith, big confidence, big trust. I mean, here's a guy, for all we know, he doesn't know the difference between God and a lizard. He didn't know the Ten Commandments. He didn't know the law. He didn't know the sacrificial system. He's never been to the temple. Heck, he couldn't even get in the temple. But he realized that Jesus has something going on bigger than Jesus. He figured out that somehow Jesus was connected to the creator of illness and disease and life and death. And he put two and two together. And Jesus is like, wow. <laughs> That's what I've been trying to tell the rest of these bozos. That's the whole reason I came. It's so that men and women would witness me and say, I have absolute confidence in Jesus because Jesus represents God. And since Jesus represents God in my life, what in the world could I possibly have to worry about? Now that's the kind of trust that we're going to be talking about in this series. And understand that's where God wants to take all of us. I'm telling you, if you read the rest of the New Testament, this is what you'll discover. The thing that makes God jump up and down is our faith and it's our trust. It's when we have great confidence in Him. And when you think about it from an earthly perspective, when you think about our human relationships, it makes perfect sense. Because the way my kids honor me the most is by having confidence in me. The way Laura honors me the most is by having confidence in me. And I'm telling you, the thing that thrills and honors God more than us simply doing what he tells us to do and following all of the rules is our expressions of confidence. And it's because at the end of the day, that is the essence of a relationship and that is what God is after. He is after a relationship. Which leads to the question we're going to be addressing in this series. What builds our trust and confidence in God? And that's the question that we're going to answer over the next five weeks. We're going to look at five things that God uses to build our trust and confidence in Him. We're not going to spend any time on them this weekend, but let me just give you what they are. Teaching and the application of teaching. Relationships, disciplines, ministry experiences, and circumstances. Let me give them to you again. Teaching, relationships, disciplines, ministry experiences, and circumstances. And I've talked to a lot of people, and these five areas seem to hold true across the board. 
We just had an off-site elder retreat. And one evening after dinner, we were sitting around talking about our spiritual journey and how God grew us into the person that we've become. And I got to tell you, these five held true across the board. Yeah, we all had different journeys. But God seemed to use these five things, sometimes just three of them, sometimes two of them, sometimes all five. But these are the five things God seems to use to grow our confidence and trust in him. So understand what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks is so much more than just knowing the Bible. It's because simply knowing the Bible, it just makes you arrogant. Just simply knowing the Bible, it can make you a Christian snob. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, knowledge puffs up. He says, in other words, if it's just about knowing the Bible, it can make you a jerk. And it's because, see, you can get so much Bible knowledge that you start depending on your Bible knowledge and you stop depending on God. And I think if you've been around Hope for a while, you know I am not against Bible knowledge. But if all you do is load up on Bible knowledge, it'll make you arrogant. So this is a lot more than just knowing the Bible. And what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks is, is so much more than just obeying a list of rules, a list of do's and don'ts. And I say that because for a lot of people, see, that's how you determine how spiritual you are. And I grew up in an environment like that. I get that. You know, I just look straight ahead. I don't look to the left. I don't look to the right. I don't have a television. I don't have the internet. I don't go to movies. I don't go dancing. I don't drink beer. I don't smoke cigars. I am pure and I am righteous. Let me just say this. You may be the most consistent, disciplined Christian in the world. But I'm telling you, if you're not dependent on God, eventually it will make you judgmental and it will make you legalistic. And you'll walk around looking at people saying, I can't believe he went there. I can't believe she wore that. I don't understand why everybody can't be as holy as I am. God must really love me. I mean, look at all I do. Look at how consistent I am. And don't get me wrong, I am all for holy and righteous living. I, I, I pray we wake up every day with a pure mind and a pure heart, but I'm telling you, if you do that without constant dependence on God, you're just going to become judgmental. You're going to be legalistic. I mean, I get it. Knowledge will make you smart. And consistency, it will make you feel better about yourself. But dependency and trust leads to intimacy. And intimacy leads to relationship. And at the end of the day, that's what God is looking for. And I'll make you this guarantee. As your trust in God grows, your hunger for his word will grow. And as your confidence in God grows, your desire to please him will grow. So starting next week, we're going to talk about five things that God uses to grow our confidence and trust in him. And we're going to talk about the importance of not just knowing the Bible, but how do we apply God's word to our lives. So we're going to begin this journey of building our confidence and trust. And why does God want to build our confidence and trust? It's because the greater the trust, the stronger the relationship. And the stronger the relationship, the more intimacy we have. And the more intimacy we have, the more God-centered we're going to be. And that's how God changes a life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you so desire to be in an intimate relationship with us. And to think that since Genesis chapter 3, when that intimacy and the trust was broken down, that you began the pursuit of rebuilding and restoring that kind of relationship. And Father, there are things that you do in our lives 
that sometimes take the wind out of ourselves and our legs out from under us. And you want us to get to the point that even when we are there, we have total confidence and trust in you because of the relationship we have with you. Regardless of what's going on in our lives, regardless of how our prayers are being answered, regardless of how our world is unfolding, we have the confidence to say God is in charge and he does everything for a reason. I still trust him. I still love him. We're just going to have to see how this all plays out. And our confidence and our trust in you, it never wavers. Father, I understand that's where you want to take us. And I pray that you'll take us all together as we get on this journey and we go on the road with you. In your name we pray. Amen.